And we welcome you to the Thursday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. Today is the monthly visit of our good friend Nan Calvert to the Morning Show. And Nan, as always, has uh, brought along with her, of course, via the telephone, (laughs) a really interesting guest to talk about one of the most, perhaps the most important of all resources, namely our water, our drinking water, our groundwater, and the importance of safeguarding the quality of our water. And towards that end, Nan has uh, secured the participation today of someone from the Wisconsin DNR, the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources, Kyle Burton, who is Field Operations Director for the DNR's Drinking and Groundwater Program. And uh, so we're going to be talking about uh, the work that they do to help in a sense, beat back uh, some of the really uh, dangerous contaminants that can uh, really interfere with the quality of our of our drinking water. And uh, we'll talk about uh, a number of other related issues as well. So first of all, Nan Calvert, welcome back to The Morning Show. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. Good to have you here. And on the telephone, Kyle Burton from the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources. Uh, Kyle, are you still with us? I am. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me today. We're glad that you can do this. Uh, so, Nan, tell us a little bit about what uh, what prompted uh, this invitation for you to uh, reach out to Kyle Burton at the DNR. Sure. So, in the not-too-terribly-distant past, I watched the film Dark Waters, uh, which is a film about PFAS contamination, not in Wisconsin, but, but elsewhere. Um, and it certainly has stayed with me since then. And then most recently, I heard a report about the Wisconsin DNR uh, implementing a mapping system for PFAS contamination in the state. And so I thought it was really important for people to know about that, to know about what PFAS are. It's a whole family of chemicals. And, uh, and to know where they come from and what can be done about them. I think one of the most concerning things to me, and there are a lot of reasons to be concerned about PFAS, is that they seem to be ubiquitous. They are found in so very many places that Kyle will talk about, and that they are not naturally occurring anywhere on this globe. So that sets up a whole slew of difficulties, challenges, uh, in terms of uh, mitigating them and um, you know, working to remove them from the environment and lessening the impact they have. PFAS are found in soil, in water, in air, uh, and they're found everywhere, essentially, at this point. Uh, And so because it is of global concern and certainly a state concern as well, I thought it was a really important thing for us to talk about and raise awareness. Very good. Well, that's why we're here. So again, Kyle Burton, we're really glad that you can join us uh, on the morning show to shed some light on this uh, important topic. Before we dig into some of the specifics of what Nan just laid out, uh, let's find out a little bit about you, uh, maybe on a more personal level, where you're from originally, and in particular, what uh, what kind of drew you to be uh, interested in kind of the natural world around you and ultimately, of course, led you to, uh, to do this work with the uh, Wisconsin DNR. Sure. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, originally, I am from the, the northeast part of Wisconsin, the, the Green Bay area. Uh, and oh, just over 20 years ago, I came out of college with a background in environmental science and policy and uh, was fortunate enough to get an internship with the Department of Natural Resources. 
And I really kind of fell in love with um, their mission, our mission here at the agency, which is to protect and enhance our natural resources as well as to provide a healthy and sustainable environment. And working uh, for the drinking water program specifically, our role in that is something that I have great passion for, which is to ensure the safety and availability of Wisconsin's drinking water supplies and to protect the health of our water resources here in Wisconsin. So it's been a 20-year-plus career so far um, working with the uh, Department of Natural Resources. And I just um, really enjoy the folks that I work with here, all of our passion for protecting Wisconsin's natural resources and, and public health and just am um, I'm very pleased to be able to have that opportunity. So was this interest in the natural world uh, and environmental well-being, is this something that's been a, a, a passion of yours pretty much all of your life? Or can you point to something or someone that kind of uh, lit the fire underneath you? Yeah, you know, for me, I, I've always been kind of an outdoors type person, spent a lot of time uh, on the water as a, as a young person, um, uh, recreating, fishing, camping, hunting. Uh, so it felt to me natural to go to work with the Department of Natural Resources or at least see what it's all about. Um, and when I got there, I, I just saw the good work being done by the folks here at the agency protecting our natural resources and then really fell into that um, uh, sense of purpose behind protecting uh, our state's drinking water sources uh, and the health of its people. It, it's really been um, just kind of the, the community and, and the mission um, behind this, I, I really found a connection to, and it was something that I, something that I still really have a passion for, and I'm really thankful to be able to have the opportunity to do so. So, uh, outline for us what the, the the primary mission is of the DNR's drinking water and groundwater program. What are the specific uh, issues and concerns that uh, that occupy your time and energy? Well, our, 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 you know, our long-term goal, our overarching um, goal is to ensure that everyone in Wisconsin has access to safe and sustainable water supplies and to protect our state's uh, water resources. And, and to do that, we, we have um, several partitions within our program. We have a, a large group of folks that, are, that work directly with public water supplies, with those municipal water supplies, those, those businesses that supply their own uh, water to their, own, to their customers. Um, from the largest um, municipality in Wisconsin, uh, Milwaukee, to the to the smallest corner bar that has a well, those are all public water systems, and we work directly with those public water systems to make sure uh, that they're supplying uh, safe drinking water to their customers. And we also work um, uh, ensuring that uh, Wisconsin's over 800,000 private wells are drilled in a way that are, that it's designed to provide safe drinking water to those folks who have their own really uh, small public water utility. You know, they're serving themselves water, um, giving them the, the information they need uh, to continue to, to uh, obtain safe and sustainable drinking water, as well as making sure those folks that are uh, installing or creating those wells for them do that, do it in a way that um, helps ensure safe drinking water in the future. And we also have a part of our program that that um, works with uh, quantity, groundwater quantity. We we work to try to ensure that um, we understand the amount of water that's being withdrawn from our state's aquifers and that it's being returned in the, the, uh, uh, the, the same uh, watershed 
to make sure uh, tracking our withdrawals and, and knowing our, our state's um, groundwater supplies and making sure that, that they, they remain sustainable and healthy. Hmm. I know that uh, one of the primary elements in what you just described is is data and in particular drinking water data measuring the quality of Wisconsin's drinking water explain to our listeners how that's done the kind of information that is necessary and how that information is in a sense sort of gathered and and processed so we can in a sense numerically uh, understand the quality of the water we're drinking absolutely thank you for that question uh, for uh, in terms of public water systems municipal water systems um, specifically uh, there are um, federal health-based numbers that are out there that um, we compare um, drinking water samples to so all of our public water systems in the state of Wisconsin, which we have over 11,000 public water systems in the state of Wisconsin, the most or nearly the most in the nation, hmm. regularly sample their drinking water uh, for a suite of contaminants, uh, regulated contaminants, and some unregulated contaminants. That data comes to us, uh, and uh, we're able to take a look at that data, compare it to those uh, maximum contaminant levels or health-based numbers, and ensure that the those drinking water sources are providing uh, drinking water that, that meets those uh, standards. And if they're not, then we, we work with those uh, water providers to take corrective actions um, to, re- to help reduce those um, contaminants in the drinking water and ensure that it, in the future that water will be safe for customers to use. Hmm. So when we're talking about the presence of contaminants in, in, in drinking water, what are we talking about in terms of the amount, generally speaking, the amount of contaminants? Uh, I mean, and, and what is the threshold of contaminants that, in a sense, are, are safe or, or pose no significant uh, threat to human well-being? Well, um, our annual drinking water report, uh, annually our program for drinking water quality report for public water systems, and and over 98% of our drinking water systems in Wisconsin have no health-based violations, which means they're serving drinking water below all um, uh, uh, maximum contaminant levels or health-based numbers. Um, so that's a good thing, right? That's something we want to celebrate. Um, but there are contaminants uh, out there in our environment. There are naturally occurring contaminants like uh, arsenic and, and radium uh, that may um, <coughs> um contaminate drinking water systems. There are also contaminants that, that come from land use activities like maybe nitrate um, or even chemical spills where we're running into um, uh, gasoline type or VOC type uh, contaminants. So we, that's why we collect the data so we can monitor the, um, the, the results and, and be able to work with um, those public water systems to, to really reduce the amount of um, contamination that is being um, served to customers. You you may have touched on this in what you were just saying, but I just want to clarify. Uh, at the outset, you made reference to regulated contaminants and unregulated contaminants. Can you explain that a little further, clarify the difference? And uh, when we're talking, for instance, about unregulated contaminants, is there any particular reason why they are not 
regulated? Is it that they just don't need to be because they are? I mean, I guess part of it is maybe we need to fully understand the term contaminants. And yeah. are contaminants always a bad thing? Or are some contaminants uh, just kind of a part of the natural order and, and, uh, and, and, and not a problem at all? Uh, let me start with just um, there are aesthetic contaminants. So that's like your, the, the sulfur taste in your water or the high iron in your water. Um, those things that really make uh, water, uh, you know, give it a little bit of hardness. Uh, maybe undesirable water but the, the health effects um, um, of those, uh, uh, their, their public welfare or aesthetic contaminants. Now, there are also health-based contaminants or, health, or public um, health contaminants that at levels above certain, at, uh, the presence at levels above certain numbers have the opportunity or the risk of creating adverse health effects. Um, now, when we get into other unregulated contaminants, sometimes... Uh, regulation hasn't caught up with science, um, and that's the uh, that's the case when we're talking about PFAS or, or perfluoroalkyl per substances, which are a group of, of man-made chemicals used for decades in numerous products, including non-stick non-stick cookware, fast food wrappers, stain-resistant sprays, certain types of firefighting foam, really um, ubiquitous in our environment, and and recently uh, we've um, many of these contaminants have made their way into the environment through spills of PFAS-containing chemicals, discharges of PFAS-containing wastewater uh, to, tr- to treatment plants and certain types of firefighting foams. And as the science, uh, as we begin to study these compounds uh, more and more, uh, we're finding that they also have a, a, a risk to uh, public health at certain levels. When there is an issue in uh, a given uh, public system of drinking water, is it more often that your testing, that is the DNR's testing, detects an issue, or is it more often that members of the public detect an issue in terms of the water looks funny or smells funny or tastes funny, and, and that alerts you to a potential problem that you then investigate. Is one scenario more common than the other? It's, it's m- most of our uh, contaminants, Greg, are really undetectable to the, to the human um, taste in, in drinking water, so we, we won't know that they're there. So uh, it's, it's the sampling that are, is done by the public water utility um, public water system which is then provided to us uh, and the public water system and um, it's those results that that generally tip us off to a situation where we want to take some action let's talk about uh, something else that is an aspect of what you do uh, which is namely the matter of construction when new construction is underway to create or expand uh, a drinking water system and that that needs to be done within certain carefully constructed guidelines. Talk us through sort of what that process looks like and uh, the kind of safeguards that are put in place at that point in the process uh, and, and, and why they are so important. Yeah, um, Really, we, we have two types of construction standards for drinking water systems in in Wisconsin, and and one is for private water uh, wells, which are 
if you built a, a house in a country, uh, you weren't connected to a municipal system, you would need a private, you would need your own well. Um, and we have um, a group of, uh, of people that work with us in our program that work directly with well drillers. We have a, a, a very um, intricate code uh, that well drillers have to follow when they're when they're constructing wells to make sure that those wells are constructed in a way that they are uh, providing safe drinking water. We also track um, uh, all kinds of data uh, across the program to understand where there may be contamination um, in the uh, across the, the layout of the state uh, and have put in special construction requirements um, if we know folks are trying to or wanting to build or live in an area where there may be groundwater contamination so we can construct those wells in a way that um, either are drilled deeper and through the contamination or in some cases in the arsenic area drill shallower and above where the contamination is. So we, we really want to provide um, our, our partners out there, um, whether it be well drillers or homeowners, with the best information we can when it comes to constructing a private water supply. On the public water side, um, the, uh, we're, we work really much more on a case-by-case basis. So a public water utility that wants to um, construct a new drinking water source um, generally has to come to us with their um, plans and specifications for constructing that source, and we really work as a partnership uh, using all the data that we have and <clears throat> as well as construction standards that, we, that are standardized uh, around the country, really, and some specific to Wisconsin to construct that drinking water source in a way that it uh, it's designed to provide uh, safe and sustainable drinking water for the customers of that public water utility for years to come. Kyle, you mentioned arsenic, and there are areas where arsenic contaminates private wells. Can people access that data on the DNR website? Is there a mapping program for that? Uh, in the sense that uh, the DNR is working on a mapping program for PFAS contamination? There is, and it, it's really better better known um, for uh, with our well drillers. There is information about arsenic on our website, mm-hmm. um, certainly. Um, and we really work with our well drillers. Arsenic was a, a project that uh, was just kicking off when I came into uh, to the department in the late 90s and early 2000s, and, and we did a really nice job of uh, determining what, where in the aquifer or where uh, in the uh, subsurface that that naturally occurring arsenic occurred uh, and uh, designing well construction standards to um, get us in a situation where those wells were not being negatively impacted by that naturally occurring arsenic. Mm -hmm. So so let's talk about this uh, mapping program that's going on for PFAS, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. So uh, we talked a little bit about PFAS, that, that group of man-made chemicals that includes over 5,000 compounds. And it's one of those, uh, what we call an emerging contaminant. Um, and it's uh, generally, uh, it's not unregulated anymore. Wisconsin just recently passed a, uh, a rule that requires uh, public water systems to sample for PFAS and sets a maximum contaminant level. So we're beginning to regulate it on the state side. The, the federal EPA is also working through um, a process to create um, uh, nationwide or federal requirements. Um, and PFAS, uh, like you said, man, they're, they're ubiquitous. They're, they're everywhere. Um, and there's something um, research has been going on, and they've identified that there may be some negative health impacts um, 
when folks are exposed to high levels of PFAS. Some of those uh, high um, negative health impacts include increased cholesterol levels, decreasing how well our body responds to vaccines, increase of thyroid, thyroid disease, connection to some types of cancer, and then also uh, health risks for women who can uh, be or, or are or could become pregnant. And we're, uh, we are exposed to PFAS, all of us are exposed to PFAS every day, but some of the main uh, ways that we can be exposed to PFAS include drinking contaminated uh, drinking water, um, eating fish, uh, that have ha high levels of PFAS in them because they live in a surface water body where there is high levels of PFAS found. Uh, and um, also there are areas of the state where um, private wells have been contaminated by PFAS. And we've been collecting this data now for uh, uh, some time, and we've had that data kind of in our data systems and on our websites in um, several locations. And we really have been working through Wisconsin as a PFAS action plan that invested in, that recommended investing in communicating the information that we have out to our customers in a, in a, in a simple way to, to access. Um, so what we did is, is we put together an interactive map, map that drew from all of our data sources to be able that customers or people in the public could access to really get a good feel of of what PFAS information we have out there, where is PFAS, where are our fish advisories, where are we working on groundwater contamination sources, which um, public water utilities have sampled for PFAS, and what are those results. So we really wanted to put that information in the hands of our engaged um, constituency so they could uh, understand what we have, know what we know, uh, and, make and make decisions um, based on the information that we have. Mm -hmm. Before we dig into more of the present day, my understanding from looking at the website is that PFAS are nothing new, that they have been widely utilized for decades. Uh, explain kind of the, the timeline and, and how and why they are now uh, attracting so much attention. Is it that they are used much more extensively than they were half a century ago? Or is it that we understand their significance more than we did, for instance, a half century ago? Yeah, I think you just hit, you hit on it really well with that second point. PFAS, have, uh, PFAS, the family of PFAS compounds have been around since about the 1940s. Um, really, were, uh, they were kind of a, uh, a groundbreaking development for uh, companies to be able to offer. If we think back to when we first had non non-stick cookware, um, uh, uh, waterproof um, jackets, waterproof shoes, uh, stain-resistant carpet. Uh, these are um, things that made our lives as um, our lives uh, much easier, much more. Um, we, we're, we were able to uh, live in an easier way because of um, some of these compounds. And as these compounds have been were used and used and, and got into our environment, uh, we started to study their their impacts um, of being in the environment and also people being exposed to them in, in high levels and found that there there is a connection to adverse health effects when con when uh, consuming PFAS at, at high levels. Hmm. Maybe you could outline for our listeners the primary w ways in which PFAS are used. I mean, and and I mean where they show up kind of in our day-to-day -day lives. 
uh, before we get into the matter of exactly how they infiltrate and contaminate our, our, our water supply. Sure. Um, to, uh, I want to start with saying two of the, the most uh, common and the most studied um, PFAS compounds, PFOA and PFOS, they've generally been phased out in production uh, in the United States. Uh, Those are the two that we're seeing that at lower levels um, can be harmful to to consumers. But that doesn't mean they're still not in the environment. Uh, But I I just wanted to make the point that they're generally not being um, manufactured in the United States anymore. But PFAS are, can be found in everyday products such as cleaning products, uh, water-resistant fabrics such as rain jackets, umbrellas, and tents, hmm. grease-resistant paper, uh, your fast food wrappers, um, nonstick cookware, like I said before. They're also present in things like personal care products, uh, shampoo, dental floss, nail polish, eye makeup, stain-resistant coatings used on carpets and upholstery and other fabrics, things as even um, as minor as uh, ski wax can be sources of PFAS. Now, um, that all being said, one, the, the primary peop- the way people can be exposed is through ingestion of, of PFAS. So, like I said, drinking contaminated water or water with high levels of PFAS, eating those fish with high levels of PFAS, Sometimes eating food packaged in materials made with PFAS or eating food grown or raised near places that PFAS were made or released into the environment. Those are the exposures um, that, that can be problematic. PFAS isn't a, a, a dermal contaminant. It doesn't hurt you by touching your skin. Um, but ingestion of high levels of PFAS is, is, is where we um, worry about um, health risks. So it certainly gives me... <laughs> pause when I think about my raincoat or my umbrella or whatever. So so knowing that it's part of water resistant, uh, water resistance or waterproofing, the shoes I'm wearing right now, do are PFAS sort of um, leaking out of them, <laughs> you know, with all of these chemicals, all of our um, stain resistance and, uh, you know, covers all of our car seats and all that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Is that how they get into the environment, or does it? Generally, um, they'll get in, you know, I don't think um, dangerous levels of PFAS, man, are coming off of your shoes. <laughs> Not mine particularly, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> or my shoes, yeah. or, or, my, or my Gore-Tex jacket, or, or any, you know, I, I think where we run into um, uh, issues with PFAS <laughs> is um, contamination from uh, large-scale uses or manufacturing mm-hmm. or, or maybe um, uh, storage of, of waste. Uh, these larger-scale situations where we have um, um, a lot of PFAS stored in one spot and there's a, a breakdown in that storage um, or maybe uh, firefighting foam. Uh, PFAS has been in certain types of firefighting foam for many years and there was some um, training exercises done outside over the years and years and years where PFAS um, was, you know, federally, the foam containing PFAS was required by the Federal Aviation um, Mm -hmm. Bureau to to do a test. And they would test it outside, put a fire out on the ground, and not not realizing that there could be harmful contaminants in that PFAS. We're we're really looking um, at uh, those those larger type situations where contamination is... um, 
happens, and, and that's what has the, the mo- most opportunity to, to impact um, our daily lives when it comes to PFAS contamination. Hmm. It's interesting to me that um, it's also found in shampoo and things, other things that come in contact with water, you know, and you think about there being, at this point, eight billion people on the planet, most of whom are <laughs> using shampoo, it seems like it would be, you know, that, that's a significant um, entry point for water ca- contamination as well, not only with manufacturing, accidental spills, um, purposeful applications and that sort of thing. So it's easy to understand why it's become ubiquitous. Right. Well, right. I mean, you're using shampoo and that, what, the suds come right off your body and right down the drain, and uh, and it seems like the perfect pathway for it. So are there, you know, when someone is using shampoo, dental floss, cosmetics, even I read in toothpaste, when we look at the ingredient list on those products, is there a way to tell if there is one of those, if there are some of those 5,000 different kinds of PFAS in the ingredient list, or would that just be impossible to figure out from just from the back of a bottle? You know, I think it's difficult. Um, I'm not an expert when it comes to personal care products um, and those uh, very, very long words that that are generally uh, listed in the fine print of the ingredients. But Mm -hmm. what I can tell you is is uh, that I, I am seeing um, just personal experience uh, shopping. I am seeing um, pots and pans being um, advertised as PFAS free or PFOA free. So, I, you know, I, I think uh, our market is, is starting to catch up um, with the idea that some of these compounds can be harmful. Um, and, you know, I think there is uh, information out there for consumers that are looking for ways to reduce their usage of PFAS. Mm-hmm. I think information can be found out there by um, looking for that. So so tell us about the genesis of the mapping program, uh, where it stands today, and then, of course, what can be done about water contaminated with PFAS. Sure. Uh, so... Like I talk, mentioned earlier, Wisconsin has a PFAS action plan uh, that really talked about wanting to communicate our data to, to our customers. Um, and we continue to gather data, and we wanted to make that uh, data, that information, easier to access for communities, policymakers, other stakeholders, uh, the general public, so they can make informed decisions uh, to help minimize their exposure. Um, so that was really the, the impetus for the uh, interactive data viewer. Uh, put all of our spot our information in one spot. You can look where you live. If you live in a in a, a city, you can look to see if they sampled for PFAS. You can look to see if there's any groundwater contamination that includes PFAS uh, in or around your city. You can look to see if there's been any surface water or fish tissue sampling in the river that goes through your community to understand what those levels are. Um, so all that information now is, is in, in one spot, relatively easy to use and understand with a few clicks to, to really uh, give people the same information um, that we've had that we that we have and that we've been collecting for some time. So would you be able to tell us, uh, for instance, if if there have been particular hot spots or trouble spots in the state of Wisconsin, in which this PFAS 
contamination has been especially acute uh, and maybe a, 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 an exceptional cause for concern? You know, I don't know that we have an exceptional cause for concern. We don't really have the data to be able to make those types of assessments. We have right now we kind of have had um, we've been kind of chasing um, PFAS um, contamination. So we, we, we get a hot spot and we, we sample around there and we find it in that in that area. Um, and that feels like a, a, a hot spot. But we don't know because we don't have that full breadth of data um, that um, from the entire state. So we wouldn't be able to, we, we can tell you or the, the data viewer can tell you by looking at it where we have found it. Um, and as we continue to gather data, we'll, we'll be able to make those types of assumptions or those types of uh, determinations. Hey, this is an area that we really think it's, it's here for uh, a certain reason. Um, and those reasons may be because there were um, P- PFAS manufacturing there or manufacturing that used PFAS or near uh, a spot where there was a, a, a giant fire where PFAS fire, uh, foam was used, and as well as there being a, you know, a vulnerable aquifer when it comes to um, drinking water. Much of our drinking water in, in the state lays just feet below our, um, the surface uh, in a re- relatively unprotected um, aquifer, so it's easy for that water to get contaminated. Hmm. How would you compare this particular threat uh, to other things that we hear about, such as uh, fertilizer and insecticide runoff, storm runoff, uh, and, and, or things like lead pipes, uh, which we also hear something about, yeah. maybe not so much in the state of Wisconsin, but certainly uh, in other places like Flint, Michigan, where that has been a very serious scourge on drinking water uh, quality. I mean, is, is the th- threat of PFAS contamination comparable to those, greater, not as, not as significant? And that's a tough question to answer. It really is. You know, we do have a, acute contaminants, you know, those contaminants that can make you sick um, um, right away with just small levels. Those, those include things like um, bacteria. Uh, and for some people, uh, for some part, parts of the, the population, nitrate can be very acute, right? If you have, think of salmonella or E. coli poisoning, right? Those are, those are acute. Those can make us sick right away. And then there are uh, what we call chronic contaminants that um, by drinking water over the period of your lifetime or over a long period of time, um, your, the, your chances increase of having um, adverse health effects. Those things are like things um, like arsenic at, at certain levels, like um, your um, uh, organic and uh, inorganic compounds uh, that, that have a chance to increase your risk over the period of your lifetime. But there are also contaminants like PFAS and lead where we're not quite sure if, well, I guess we are. With lead, um, our, health, our health professionals will tell us there's no safe source, there's no safe level of lead. Um, lead um, is, a, um, is a contaminant that that's, we're very concerned about. It's not one that'll make you sick right away unless it's at very high levels, um, but it's one that We'd like to, you know, that's why we're, we're seeing many communities doing, getting the lead out, removing their lead service lines, removing lead from their drinking water system because there's no safe level of lead. With PFAS, the, the numbers, the, the recommended numbers, or even the, the regulated numbers around the, the country that have been put in by states are very low. So the, the levels of 
PFAS measured in the parts per trillion, um, which is uh, one drop of water in um, uh, several Olympic swimming pools. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's very low. So those levels are very low. It, it, it can be um, very dangerous or, or very have um, significant health impacts for people at, at very low levels. Interesting. Are we seeing this concern across the country, or would you, uh, and maybe you're not in a position to, 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 to know this, but do you have some sense that Wisconsin is a leader when it comes to concerns about this and taking proactive action over this? I, I certainly think we are taking um, significant action in the state of Wisconsin. PFAS is a, is a state of Wisconsin issue. It's a, it's a national issue. Many states around the, um, uh, around the country have um, uh, collected data, um, instituted their own regulations. Um, and it's also a, a, a global issue. I was just reading a, um, an article the other day about um, PFAS contamination in, in Italy. And, and many of the same issues that, they, that are being seen around the world are things that we're dealing with here right in Wisconsin. So it, it, it's an issue. Actions being taken around the state, around the country, around the world uh, in response to PFAS contamination. So, Kyle, let's say that a, a hot spot is identified in, uh, in drinking water or in groundwater. What kinds of things can be done to lower the levels of PFAS or remove them altogether, at least to uh, a non-injurious level? Thank you so much for bringing me back to the good news, Nan. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the good news is we can get it out of our water. We can get it out of our drinking water. Um, there are um, acceptable um, treatment techniques out there that we know remove it from our drinking water. We have um, uh, at least one um, utility, public wa- public utility in the state of Wisconsin that is already treating its water um, for PFAS, removing that PFAS that they know is in their water that they did through voluntary testing. We have many other communities in the state of Wisconsin that are working on um, putting in treatment design to take out PFAS, some uh, in response to higher levels of, of PFAS found through voluntary testing, some just proactively wanting to make sure that PFAS doesn't become an issue for them uh, down the road. We have um, large utilities around the country that have been operating um, PFAS treatment uh, systems uh, for, for periods of years now um, successfully removing PFAS. And we also have information out um, uh, on our partner agency's website, uh, Department of Health Services, about in-home treatment. Um, if you have your own private well and you happen to sample for PFAS um, and you want to be able to treat for that, there's information out there um, um, about um, you know uh, treatments you can put on your faucet, uh, treatments you can put under your sink that'll help remove PFAS um, from your drinking water. So it is a matter of filtration then? Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Carbon, uh, granulated activated carbon is one of the most oh. commonly used and commonly accepted ways to remove um, PFAS. Of course, I, you know, I would um, really want people to understand that just putting a, a, a carbon filter on your faucet or um, in your refrigerator uh, and leaving it for uh, and forgetting about it for <laughs> um, a long period of time is not a way to um, uh, effectively remove PFAS. Anytime you're treating for any contaminants, it's, it's so important to maintain that treatment um, as the manufacturer specifications um, describe. Uh, otherwise, you could end up getting yourself in a situation where you're actually worse off. Um, so. 
maintenance of treatment systems is very important. And then uh, maintaining the treatment system uh, when it's time to change your filter, how should the used one be disposed of? Yeah, those are those are great questions that we get asked quite a bit, and you know things that we're working on, and they're really being working on nationwide. And the best answer for um, disposing of, of any PFAS uh, filter or PFAS related um, product is is to um, send it out with your trash that goes to a um, licensed uh, and regulated uh, waste facility. You know, our landfills are are designed to minimize any runoff into the environment, into the groundwater. They're, they're, they're designed and regulated and really right now the best option that we have for PFAS waste. Kyle, I, I think I understand that um, research into the effects of PFAS on wildlife in general um, is in sort of its infancy. Is that correct? Yes. Um, I think la- uh, large-scale research into it is kind of just a, a, a recency thing. I know in Wisconsin, um, along the Mississippi River, there's been um, longer-term studies on it. But we have been doing, um, in, in Wisconsin specifically, um, in the recent years, been doing uh, some fish tissue studies mm-hmm. um, and found PFAS in higher levels in some pif- uh, in some fish species around the state. We actually have some PFAS-specific consumption, fish consumption um, uh advice or advisories out there, similar to how we have um, fish advisories or advice uh, for consumption around PCBs and mercury um, in the state. Uh, all that information can be found on our interactive um, uh, web viewer. Um, so uh, there is, uh, as far as wildlife, I think it's, it's probably a little bit um, more in its infancy. Um, there was a study in, around one of our PFAS investigations I, um, uh, you know, a couple of years ago we found that um, in a certain area, uh, PFAS levels in the livers of deer uh, were high, and there's a consumption advisory around that. And we've seen other things like that in states like Michigan. But in, in general, land, I think your statement was a correct one. And so do PFAS bioaccumulate? In other words, the fish and deer and whatever else is uh, impacted by them, they don't process it and eliminate it to a certain extent. It just continues accumulating? They do. But PFAS, that's a very good point and one that I've failed to make thus far, but thank you. Um, PFAS do bioaccumulate uh, in um, animals and people, mm-hmm. which is um, why it is, is um, why in such low levels uh, it has the uh, ability to raise the, the risk of uh, health risks. Hmm. So uh, they, they, we do excrete them, but very slowly. Um, so they, that's why they're called bioaccumulative. Um, and um, they build up in our bodies. And the more that build up in our bodies, um, the thought is or research points to that they, the higher the risk for adverse health. Well, you've shared a lot of important information with us today, and we really uh, appreciate that. Uh, if people go to the uh, Wisconsin DNR's website, dnr.wisconsin.gov, uh, what kind of information can they find there to uh, educate themselves still further? Yeah, by, by just searching for uh, going to that website, dnr.wisconsin.gov, and, and searching for PFAS, um, you'll 
you'll get to our uh, interactive viewer, you get to our PFAS page, uh, which highlights our interactive viewer, so we, you can bump around there and, and find where we've been working on uh, PFAS contamination. Uh, we also have all of our uh, drinking water data uh, at your fingertips, so you can go to our dnr.wisconsin.gov and search uh, uh, drinking water and type in the city that you live in. You can see all of the PFAS sampling data. You can see all of the water quality data that your your um, community has um, collected over the years. Uh, we really try to get uh, as much information out there for our customers as possible. Fantastic. Kyle Burton is uh, Field Operations Director for the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources Drinking and Groundwater Program. Kyle, thank you so much for making time in your really busy schedule to be a part of our morning show today. It's been really great to talk with you. Very happy to be here. Thank you so much for the invite. I enjoyed it. Yes, thank you so much, Kyle. My word, Nan, what a fantastic guest, Kyle Burton from uh, the Wisconsin DNR. You have to be pleased about that. Yes, you know, what I'd like people to take away from this particular interview is that this is a very big problem. It's a huge challenge because PFAS, you know, the family of those chemicals, over 5,000 of them, are found everywhere now. But there are things that we can do just in our daily lives in order to lessen the impact. So one of them is if you have nonstick cookware and the surface, the nonstick surface is marred or scratched, get rid of it. Everything points to getting rid of those and replacing them with a different kind of cookware uh, that doesn't contain PFAS. And of course, you know, cast iron is the old standby. Once they're seasoned, absolutely nothing sticks to them. Uh, and hopefully at some point in time, there will be consumer labeling that alerts us to a possible uh, problem. There are PFAS contained in whatever it is that you're using. But just know that there are ways to mitigate it so that if you have your water tested, particularly if you live on a well, like I do, uh, there are, it's a simple fix, essentially, you know, it's, it's a carbon filter. Uh, so yes, it's an enormous challenge, but we can do something about it. And the biggest thing we can do is limit our use of products in so far as we can uh, that are manufactured with PFAS. And hopefully some of those regulations will get tightened considerably, yes. so there'll be less of that uh, out in the world. All right, let's get to a couple of announcements before we say goodbye. Okay, it's very exciting, you know, because the holiday season is upon us. So Riverbend Nature Center has uh, brought back its very popular program called Gifts of Nature that will happen on December 10th from 9 until noon. So just in time for the holidays, you can make up to eight beautiful gifts using materials found in nature. Uh, the program is for everybody seven years old and up. All materials are included in the program fee, which is $50 for members and $60 for those people who have yet to become members. Uh, in order to register, and yes, you do need to register because it fills up quickly, just go to the Riverbend uh, website, and it's a point-and-click thing, very easy. And what a great way to make meaningful gifts and also support your local nature center. And here's another opportunity. Hawthorne Hollow's Holiday Boutique will be on December 3rd from 9 
9 a.m. to 3 p.m. Santa Claus will be there from 10 a.m. till 1 p.m. And so there are beautiful, unique, handmade gifts, wreaths, swags, all kinds of things from materials on the ground. Uh, there will be homemade cookies, cakes, candies, great for gift giving. Uh, so avail yourself of that opportunity to have really beautiful things to give to the people that you love and support Hawthorne Hollow. The Racine Dominican Eco Justice Center is holding a needle felting alpaca ornament session. Uh, these also are beautiful and great for people's holiday trees. That will be on Saturday, December 3rd from 9 until 11.30. The cost is $20. Uh, you do have to register for that one as well. Uh, and it's for people from 12 years and up. Just, again, go to the website for the Racine Dominican Eco Justice Center, point and click, and you're in. And that's it. Very good. Thank you, Nan Calvert, for that and for uh, <laughs> helping to arrange a really, really interesting morning show today. Always my pleasure. Thank you so much. We'll see you soon.